Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we talk about when we talk about faith. Today is a special live episode with author and theologian Tony Jones. Tony is the author of Did God Kill Jesus? Searching for Love in History's Most Famous Execution is theologian in residence at Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis and teaches theology at Fuller Theological Seminary and United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Tony serves as a senior acquisitions editor at Fortress Press, curating the Theology for the People line of books, and has developed an iPhone app called Ordain Thyself. We thank Tony for taking the time of a whole weekend here at Round Hill Community Church and are excited to share him with you. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Round Hill Community Church on this beautiful, sunny, spring-like day. Hopefully you got a chance to get outside and enjoy some of the sun. The days are lengthening, which is always nice, um, and we are just delighted that you are here. So thank you so much for being here this evening. Round Hill Community Church has a storied history of inviting uh, speakers, authors, storytellers, historians to come and to present a wide range of topics and interests and conversation starters. And we are very delighted to continue our speaker series with inviting Dr. Tony Jones to be here with us, not just for this evening, but for, uh, for this whole weekend. Uh, Dr. Jones, Tony, lives in Minnesota with his wife and uh, three children. And he is an author of over 12 books and a noted outdoors writer right now, which is his current passion. Um, over these last 20 years or so of, of writing, uh, Tony has written about theology, religion, faith, and his latest and most recent book, Did God Kill Jesus? Um, I certainly believe is a very timely question, and it addresses something that's important for people of faith and people of Christian faith, certainly this time of year, as we are in the season of Lent, these 40 days leading up to Holy Week, and one of the key events of Holy Week is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for many people of Christian faith, other faiths, non-faiths, the crucifixion of Jesus, what happened on that cross, is a mystery and confusing and even for many a stumbling block towards faith. And so Tony has spent the last number of years doing some great research and has created this, written this wonderful book that personally um, has been a gift to me to be able to help me navigate some of my own questions and my own issues. So personally, uh, I'm indebted to, to Tony for writing this book, and it's a wonderful conversation partner for, uh, for people of faith. And so we're delighted to have Tony here. So this evening, he's going to present um, a, a, a talk that will last approximately an hour. And if you have questions or comments, uh, what we would kindly invite you to do is to, to hold on to them, remember them, because we're going to have a reception following the talk in the parlor. We've got um, some, some beverages and, and some refreshments. Tony will be available to, uh, to have a meet and greet. 
that there'll be a book signing as well. So if you brought your book or are interested in purchasing the book, uh, he'll be there to, to sign that and also to answer some of the questions that you might have or to spend some time with him. So we do hope that you will stay following the presentation. Join us for a time of refreshments in the parlor. And again, thank you so much for, uh, for being here this evening and I'd like to offer a warm round hill welcome to Dr. Tony Jones. For having me. I, I think maybe Dan thinks I'll be gentler in, with questions and answers after a couple glasses of wine. That's why he wants to do it in the reception rather than in here. How are you doing? Good? Boy, it's, it's, great. it's great that you all have come out. Um, I've got a little presentation that we'll go through and um, talk a little bit about the meaning of the crucifixion. I was speaking uh, at a big Lutheran church in Minnesota. It's hard to believe, I know. Um, yeah, everything Garrison Keillor ever said was true. You know this, right? It's actually true. Like, my, um, my dad grew up in a little town in Gaylord, Minnesota, and his dad uh, was the Ford dealer in that town. And they, you know, old school, like, they had two cars in the showroom. And uh, he was also the mechanic, of course, and stuff like that. And, and owned the wrecker, so he had to tow people out of the ditch in the snow. And so he lived in, they, they were in Gaylord, Minnesota, and that was a town full of German Lutherans. And all the Lutherans drove Fords. And the next town over was Arlington, and that's where the Chevy dealer was. And that town was settled by Catholics, and all the Catholics drove Chevys. I'm not kidding. So see, was that like right out of a Garrison Keillor monologue? I'm not kidding. It's, that's really how it is. So this youth pastor, um, he asked me to come speak at his church, and it was in December. It was during Advent. And he said, uh, here's the deal. We have, it, it, Lutherans, they make their kids go to three years of confirmation, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. It's high, high bar. And he said, once or twice a year, we'll have all the confirmation kids from all three years of classes and all their parents, and we'll meet in the sanctuary on a Wednesday night. We make all their parents come, and then we'll have a guest speaker. And usually we have somebody come in, talks about, like, don't use your cell phone too much, or, like, don't do drugs. But we thought we'd have a theologian come in. <laughs> I was like, that's a terrible idea. What are you thinking? And he said, well, what's your latest book on? You can just talk about whatever book you're writing. And I was writing this book. And I said, but I'm coming during Advent. You don't want me to talk about the crucifixion during Advent. He said, no, just go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and do it. So here, we, here I am in this big Lutheran sanctuary in Minnesota full of Lutheran kids and their Lutheran parents. Maybe like four or 500 people in this room. Twelve pastors on staff all sitting in the back pew. <laughs> And I was like, okay, how many of you have ever heard Jesus died for your sins? And of course, every single hand goes up. And I said, all right, here's the deal. Here's what's going to happen. Everybody believes Jesus died for your sins. You hear it. People say it to you. Um, you might even believe it. So all you confirmation kids, I want you to turn to the adult who brought you tonight and ask them to explain how that works, that Jesus died for your sins. Like, by what cosmic mechanism 
did the death of Jesus make all your sins go away? And there was this groan across the congregation, you know, as all these adults were like, no, don't make me explain something I believe. (laughs) And so I was like, I'm going to give you 60 seconds, and then your confirmand gets to give you a grade on how good your answer is. Because they're getting graded all the time. You know, they're in middle school. So 60 seconds goes by, and I call them all back together, and I say, okay, how'd they do? And this one gr- little girl raised her hand. She's like, I give my mom a B minus. <laughs> and it, was, it went on like that. I mean, and this was what was interesting to me. And it was kind of my animating question in writing this book is here's this phrase, Jesus died for your sins, that virtually all Christians uniformly believe. But very few of us are able to articulate the obvious follow-up question, how does that work? And I was interested in knowing how it worked. And so I, um, what the first thing I started to do was to write blog posts about it. And um, I was getting a lot of traction and buzz around the blog posts. Uh, People were really interested. And I um, blogged for about 10 years and did a lot of series and generated a lot of traffic and whatever. And this was one of those things that really captured people's attention. And um, then I read about some guy who became a millionaire by just like collecting his blog posts and Publishing them into a, into a Kindle ebook, <laughs> and so the next thing I did was oh that's my family I guess I was supposed to show that so. cute aren't they cute? This one's in college, he's on spring break with his grandma in Florida right now. She's a senior in high school and is in Cambodia on a mission trip. I just got a text from her in the hotel. They made it safely to Cambodia, and this one's on a plane to visit his mom in uh, Baltimore. That's my wife, Courtney. Those are not her kids. They're my kids. That's my wife, Courtney. She's a photographer, as you can tell, by the beautiful photo. And that's me. I don't know if you knew, know, knew that. Okay, so I collected these blog posts and made them into an ebook and published it, and that did really well, too, but I did not become a millionaire from that. So, I mean, I think it's always interesting to talk to an author about what gave birth to a book. Um, I had put out this ebook and it had generated some conversation and stuff. And I was at a conference with this great, incredible woman, matriarch of the church, theologian, author named Phyllis Tickle. And I know people in this congregation have had, you, you probably know, like you've had Marcus Borg speak at this church, and maybe you've heard of Diana Butler Bass and uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. Phyllis Tickle was in that same kind of pantheon of, of awesome Protestant writers and stuff. And she, we were, I, I was at a conference at which she was speaking, and I was standing on one side of this room, and she started talking about how the atonement is like the one big theological thing that American Christians don't know anything about, and they need to know more about it because it's so central to our faith, the cross. It's in every church. But what does it mean? What did it do? Somebody needs to write a book about this, she says. And it was one of those, my agent, my literary agent was also in the room at a different point in the room, and it was one of those deals where we wrote, we were texting each other and like the texts passed in the, you know, 
in like Willy Wonka land or whatever when they shoot the kid from the one thing to the other. It was like that. And so then I took this, I took these blog posts and fleshed it out into a full-fledged book. I was, um, I was at a, what's the name of that Christian college, Houghton College? Pretty conservative Wesleyan school, right? So what town is it in? Houghton? What's it called? Houghton, New York? Yeah. Dan knows these things. I was speaking there a few years ago, and uh, they were not happy that I was there. Like, when I got to campus, um, the, the person who booked me in the chaplain's office said, you need to go meet with the dean. And I was like, I'm not a student here. Why don't you make me meet with the dean? How can I be in trouble? I'm like, I'm the guest speaker. So I met with the dean. And he said, we got some emails from trustees. They're really mad that we would have you on campus because you're so liberal or whatever. You know? So here's the deal. We're still going to let you give your two keynote lectures and preach in our student chapel, but then your last keynote lecture, instead of that, you are going to have a debate in front of area pastors with two of our professors from our theology department. And that's how we're appeasing our trustees to tell them that we're not just letting you kind of have unmitigated reign on our campus. I was like, whatever. Well, I mean, as long as your check doesn't bounce... I'll do whatever you want. I'll come and talk and debate your theology professors. So we get to this thing. I'm sitting there with two theology professors, one on either side. And there's a pastor in the audience who, after I, there's some opening remarks or whatever, and now it's time for Q&A. And he stands up and just starts railing into me about the atonement. How can you, and I'll get into these terms, so don't get lost in the terms yet. How can you not believe in the penal substitutionary atonement? That's the, you know, that's, the, that's the gospel. And for you not to believe that, you're a heretic. Which is a big bomb to drop at a pastor's conference kind of situation. And you know, I could like feel the sweat starting to drip. <laughs> like, what, how am I going to get out of this? I don't want to offend anybody. Before I could say anything, one of the theology professors stood up and he was mad. His face was red, and he said, how dare you? You cannot, hear, you cannot call somebody a heretic based on... He said, the, 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 the definition of being a heretic is being out of alignment with one of the nine ecumenical church councils that took place before the Great Schism in 1054. So, the nine ecumenical councils, like, you know the Nicene Creed, it comes out of the Council of Nicaea. You know that in, maybe you know, you remember from uh, your college European history class, that in 451, there was the Council of Chalcedon in which they debated the dual nature of Christ, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. The council voted, they determined that, and that became orthodoxy in the Christian church and has been ever since, okay? His point was, the atonement was never debated by a council. The atonement has always been, in some way, plastic or malleable to the culture that was considering what the cross means. Which is a fascinating and kind of mind-expanding thought to have. 
and, and especially if you're a theologian and you're debating these kind of things. So here's what I want to propose to you as kind of like a working definition for, or an, uh, an animating statement or thesis for the night. The crucifixion of Jesus is a solution in search of a problem. And I'm going to try to prove that by showing you the different ways through the course of uh, human history that people have understood the crucifixion. So for Christians from the beginning, beginning with the Apostle Paul in his writings, the crucifixion is the answer. The question has changed. The question that the crucifixion has answered has changed. Now, from the beginning, as you may know from hearing sermons from the letters of Paul your whole life, the crucifixion was absolutely central to Paul. In fact, he uses the death of Christ and the word gospel often interchangeably. For him, think of this about Paul's writings. Paul never mentions baby Jesus in a manger. Paul never mentions Mary and Joseph. Paul never mentions a parable. Paul never mentions a miracle. None of the things Jesus did in his life matter a whit to the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. All that matters to Paul is Jesus' death and resurrection. That, for Paul, is the beginning and end of the Christian faith, and that's what he preached. Christ crucified. You know this phrase. He, I preach Christ crucified. Paul said it repeatedly. So from the beginning, from the writings of Paul, which predated the Gospels, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, was the key that unlocks the door to what the Christian faith is all about. Which is why, even if you're a little... It's funny, the crucifixion um, nowadays, because especially like on a day like today, we are all very sensitive toward blood and violence, as we should be. Probably more sensitive to blood and violence than any time in human history. First of all, we're more removed from violence. We live much safer uh, and less violent lives than any hominids, any bipedal creatures in 100,000 years. We live the least violent lives. And we're also, have, our society has evolved in such a way that we try to live out less violent lives. So when violence happens, as it did yesterday in New Zealand, it's terrifying, and we want it to stop and end. And yet, every Sunday, we come to a place that proclaims a bloody death as somehow the pivot point for all of history. Because, at least according to Paul, and the grand tradition of the Christian church, if Jesus would have died an old man of natural causes, there would be no Christian church. There would be no Christian faith. That's not, because that's what Paul says it's all about. Okay. So, what I'm going to say to you now, and in, in our moments um, remaining, 
is to tell you, basically give you a family tree of the way that the crucifixion has been understood in the last two millennia. And I'm going to talk about the major families or the major understandings of the death of Jesus and what it did. Okay? So again, to reiterate, the crucifixion is a solution in search of a problem. In other words, at every time in human history, the crucifixion has always been considered central. The pivot point of cosmic history. Churches have always had crosses hanging at the front. But how they understood what happened at that pivot point, what was the problem and how that solved it, how the crucifixion solved it, that's what's changed over time. So I hope you all can see this. I know the screen's a little small for this room, but um, this is going to lay out, and then I'm going to go through them, the different versions of the atonement. Now, they have different names than this in like theology textbooks. I renamed them in my book because I thought words like penal substitutionary atonement or Christus Victor theory were a little bit out of reach for a lot of people. So I gave them better names. I think better names. Now, the first thing for us to understand is these two sides of the family tree. Over here, the objective side of the family tree. Those are understandings of the atonement in which human agency is not involved. What we do does not matter. Your salvation is not incumbent upon your behavior or even your response. God and Jesus did something Something happened out there, away from us, and we're removed from it. All right? And we'll get into that. It leads to all sorts of things like the Calvinist doctrine of predestination, in which your salvation was determined before the creation of the earth. Whether or not you are among the elect or the damned is your that is, was decided irrespective of how you live your life, okay? You, you see, you are an object of something God is doing. That's how sovereign God is. That's, those are the objective views. Now over here, the subjective views, as you might now guess, are views of the atonement in which your response does matter. Something happens between God and Jesus and you and I are called upon to respond to that activity. We have agency in the subjective understandings of the atonement. So the family tree is split into these two different sides. All right, I'm not really going to go in chronological order. I'm going to go around the family tree in this other way. Now, this is one thing to say when you see these Bible verses that I throw up there. As you might guess, every single one of these understandings of the atonement has a, the, uh, a biblical and theological rationale behind it. In other words, you can find Bible verses that back up any of these, or they wouldn't have stuck, obviously. Okay? All right. 
By the way, a little side trivia note. Unlike the 25th anniversary of Siskel and Ebert, you know, the thumbs up, thumbs down, some, some people are too young to remember that in the room. Yeah, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But most of us remember Siskel and Ebert. They, they made up the thumbs up and thumbs down. They had a show on PBS for years. And unlike the 25th anniversary of that show, they, they had this recap show where they look back on earlier shows, whatever. And, and they, asked Roger e, they asked each of them one movie they were totally wrong about that they wish they could change their thumbs down to a thumbs up. And Roger Ebert said, slap shot. Great hockey movie. Okay, anyway, a little Minnesota trivia. <laughs> Bunch of Minnesotans in that movie. It's like a very legendary movie in Minnesota. The payment model was originated by a bishop named Anselm in the 12th century. If you read Anselm's very famous work, which some of you might have even read bits of, like in a, in a college European history class, the title of the book is Cur Deus Homo, Why a God-Man. What Anselm writes is that we, in our sin, have besmirched the honor of God. We have, we have dishonored God by our sin. And because of that, we owe God a debt. It's a debt that we cannot pay. Only someone without sin could pay that debt. Oh, well, there happens to be someone without sin. That's Jesus. So what happens in this objective view of the atonement in which you and I play no part, is that there's a debt owed to God by us. All of this is based on the doctrine of original sin, which that doctrine goes back another 600 years to St. Augustine, the most important theologian in the history of the Christian church after Paul. That's Augustine. And Augustine was really, really keen on the doctrine of original sin. And he really, it's like buried deep in the DNA for all of us who are Western Christians. Eastern Christians in the Orthodox Church actually reject Augustine and don't believe in original sin. But all of us, Catholics and Protestants in the Western tradition, have inherited this view of original sin from Augustine. And Anselm, very much in keeping with this, said it's inevitable we're going to sin. Your sin is passed down. Actually, Augustine says your sin is passed down through semen, which is why Jesus was sinless, because there was no semen involved in the conception of Jesus, which then Catholics later had to say, well, what about didn't Mary's womb like wouldn't maybe some sin have rubbed off on Jesus in utero? Because, of course, Mary had a father, and then came along the medieval Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And some of you were raised Catholic? Anybody raised Catholic? Yes, uh, half of you. And you remember December 8th is... Holy Day of Obligation, it's the day of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So then they kind of like 
um, retrofitted a theology for Mary so that Mary too was without original sin and there would be no in utero transfer of original sin to Jesus so Jesus could pass through the birth canal sinless. But really, like you can read medieval, um, there are medieval manuscripts by theologians talking about Jesus' birth and saying that there was no blood involved in Jesus' birth. Jesus came, like, stuff like this. They were trying to sanitize Jesus from the stain of human sin. That's how important this was, that Jesus be sinless. Because then Jesus can pay the debt that we owe to God, but cannot pay. Now, the question of why is God so demanding that somebody pay this debt, what Anselm says to that is, because if we're going to spend, if God's going to allow us to spend an eternity in heaven, God needs us to be clean of any debt. It would be, in these objective views of the atonement, it would be unjust for God to let in people God because we've dishonored God by disobedience through sin. So Jesus steps in the breach and says, I will pay. You maybe also remember from um, like European history class in college, the thing, and it's, it's, it, it goes on in Catholic teaching for where, how you can um, uh, buy indulgences from the Catholic Church because Jesus' death created what's called an infinite treasury of merit. In other words, um, so think of it like this. We owe God a debt. We go to our bank account. We don't have nearly enough money to pay the debt. Jesus has enough money in his bank account, and he can write checks all day long because his bank account is limitless. It's like an infinitely deep well of gold coins or something. Jesus will never run out of money paying the debt that we owe to God. So that became very popular. Now, in the thousand years since then, oh yeah, local resident I've heard, right? That's awesome. Next time you see her at the coffee shop, you tell her, I heard about you in a theology uh, lecture the other night. That'll blow her mind probably, right? Theologians doubled down on this thing that Anselm wrote about in Why a God-Man. So you fast forward 500 years and you get to Calvin. And Calvin... Uh, who starts the, the part of the Protestant Reformation that results in Congregationalism and Presbyterianism and, and, and the Reformed Church. Calvin says, it's, it, we don't just owe God. We need, to, we need to be penalized for our sin. So somebody needs to pay a price. And then you fast forward further to something I'm sure you'll remember, from Jonathan Edwards. Remember Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? You all remember reading that in high school in, in American literature class? And remember the, the, the big metaphor in that, um, in that sermon? It was a spider. It's a spider hanging by a single thread over a flame. And we're the spider and God's holding the thread. And 
What we deserve is for God to drop us into the fire. It's, it's a brilliant piece of writing, but also a horrific piece of writing, right? So they take this, they take this theory from Anselm of payment, and they crank it up. They keep turning the screw. So now it's like, not only do you, uh, have, you, has, have you dishonored God, and so you owe God honor that you can no longer pay to God, but now you deserve to be punished for your sin. And somebody needs to be punished on your behalf. So this is why, now, we're going to have a lot fewer hands. Anybody grew up evangelical? Come on, raise them. Raise them up, you two. <laughs> so then we would hear stories like this from our youth pastors. Not that when we were youth pastors, we ever told, used analogies like this. But it's like, um, a prisoner is condemned to death. And then the judge stands up, takes off his robe, and goes to the electric chair and takes the penalty on behalf of the prisoner. Did you ever hear that one? Yeah, did you ever hear that one? Yeah. But, yeah, is that right? No, this is what's funny, is it? Yeah, when you grow older, you're like, wait. You think when you, when you grow older, you realize there's not a court in the world where that would be acceptable. Everybody would stop that crazy judge and be like, no, 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 that's not how it works. You don't get, like, you dying in the electric chair doesn't, t like, that's not justice. But when you're 14 years old on the last night of church camp and you're completely exhausted and crying and the youth pastor wants to get you to, invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, and they tell you this story about the judge who took off his robe and went to the electric chair for you, you start crying and invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, right? How many, how many times did you do that? Yeah, exactly. Every year at church camp you do it. Every year at church camp. Now here's what's interesting about this model, which some theologians call a forensic model or a litigious model. Because doesn't it, the way I describe it, it sounds very legal. We've committed a crime against God, and we need to pay a penalty for that. It's very much like our legal system. Well, it won't surprise you to hear that when this was started, it was within a hundred years of the Magna Carta, the first like proto-constitution in the Western world. And as this this theory developed in the West as our legal system developed. And we are now what? What are we a nation of? Laws. We're a nation of laws. We have, in fact, I, I, when I was re researching the book, I looked up, there, were, there was some task force in Washington, D.C., and they were um, supposed to catalog how many federal laws in the United States exist. They were just supposed to come up with a number of how many federal laws there are. And they stopped counting at something like 40,000, and they were like, it, we can't, it's impossible. You cannot possibly catalog all the federal statutes that there are in the United States. So we live, of course, in, in like, you and I, between federal, state, and local, we have more laws over us as human beings, than any human beings who've ever lived. 
and any human beings in any other country. So it just won't be that surprising then to us to know that this version of the atonement has been by far the most popular in the United States over the years. And it continues to be in the evangelical church. It's the reason why that pastor got up and shouted at me, because I was questioning whether this should be the version of the atonement that uh, we all base our theology on. There are, of course, problems with this version of the atonement, because it's based on the idea that God would know that we are going to sin and nevertheless be angry with us for sinning. This is the version of the atonement where we get terms like wrathful God, the wrath of God, burn in hell, turn or burn. These kind of phrases that some of us toss off as jokes. In cocktail parties, a lot of people like base their entire theology on. It's what got Jonathan Edwards to write, listen to the title of that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards, like one of the most brilliant theologians in the American tradition, believed that God was angry with him and with all of us. He also believed that God knew from the beginning of creation that we would, that Adam and Eve would sin and subsequently every one of us would sin. So it's a funny deal to think about that, that God would be like that kind of twisted and devious, that would both know we were going to do this and then be really pissed off when we do it. Okay? So that's one. Here's another one. That's, that's, a, um, that's from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie, that image. So you remember that story from the first book in the Narnia series? Remember that a little bit? There's four siblings who go through a closet and get to Narnia. There's one kid who's kind of a naughty kid, right? Edmund. Edmund sneaks away from his siblings, hangs out with the white witch, and eats some Turkish delight. Somehow, by eating Turkish delight, he has betrayed his siblings. And to betray loyalty is basically, in Narnia, punishable by death. So she has tricked Edmund into eating this candy. And really, unbeknownst to him, he's now sentenced to death. And, you know, she turns people into stone, right? Because she's, she's got this garden full of other creatures she's turned into stone for similar reasons. So she is going to sacrifice Edmund on the stone table. When Aslan, the messianic lion, strolls into the scene, and she is, of course, the nemesis, he is the nemesis of the evil white witch. And the way the scene, the way C.S. Lewis writes the scene, it kind of takes place like a little bit off stage while the siblings are talking. They're freaking out that their brother's going to be executed. And um, then Aslan comes back to them, having worked out something with the white witch, and ends up with Aslan on the stone table. The kids freak out that their messianic lion savior is being uh, killed, and he's killed on the stone table. 
because there's, um, this is allowed somehow. And of course, the white witch thinks this is fantastic. I will happily give up this adolescent boy because I get to kill my nemesis, this, this holy lion. Well, what she doesn't know is that the next day, Aslan comes back in a resurrected form. The stone table breaks so nobody else can ever be executed on it again. And the children are reunited with their messianic lion, Aslan, although he's different than he was before. All right? Tolkien plays a little bit on this. You know, um, what's his name? The wizard who... Gandalf goes down the thing and then comes back and he's white and he's changed. You know, there's something different about him. Aslan comes back similarly. Just like Jesus in the Gospels comes back and he's different. Somehow he's different. Cleopas and his friend who are walking on the road to Emmaus don't recognize Jesus till he breaks the bread. Then suddenly they recognize him. Jesus seems to, based on the writings um, of the Gospel writers, seems to like kind of walk through walls and appear in rooms. Things like this. So they can recognize him and see him, but he's somehow changed. He's different. This is how Aslan comes back. C.S. Lewis bases this whole thing on what's called by theologians the ransom captive theory. I call it the victory theory. They also call it the, um, the Christus victor theory, which is just Latin for Christ the victor. In this theory... And this theory predates Anselm. So the first thousand years of the church's history, this was the most popular version of the atonement. And you, again, remember the world in which this version was so popular was a world of supernaturality. Like everything that happened was because there were supernatural forces that you could not see. Thunderstorms, droughts, somebody in your family dying for some mysterious cause. You wake up in the morning and somebody in your family's dead. Demons, angels, supernatural forces. That somehow after we sinned in Adam and Eve, Satan got control of the world. Satan was in charge, but kind of also fighting it out with God. And Satan had taken the world captive and demanded a ransom. And what Satan wanted as the ransom to give back the hostages, us, all of creation, was God's perfect son, Jesus. And so God gave over his perfect son, Jesus. What Satan didn't know was that God double-crossed him because Jesus rose again on the third day more powerful than ever. And Satan, just like the white witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, no, you double-crossed me, very angry. Uh, one of the great theologians in the early church, Origen, wrote a little bit about this and he actually, in his um, treatise on this, writes about that God put Jesus on a fish hook and went fishing 
and Satan bit like biting a, a nightcrawler or a minnow, didn't know there was a hook underneath it, and God used Jesus as bait to hook Satan. And that's, and of course, there are, you know, there are um, phrases in the Gospels about Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. And of course, there's a lot of language in the Bible about Satan as well. So that's where this phrase comes from, that in the cross, Satan was defeated, and this is how, because God said, go ahead, you can kill my son with your evil earthly forces. And then God had the ultimate victory over that death by resurrecting Jesus on the third day. So now we're going to switch. Again, you can see how this is really a, a supernatural calculus going on here between God and Jesus and Satan. doesn't really involve you and me. I mean, we're the benefactors of this, but we don't play a, play a role in it, in, in that one either. Now we're going to get into the subjective ones. Oh, yeah, I already did that. There we go. Okay. There was a guy named uh, Peter Abelard who lived right around the time of Anselm. You may remember Peter Abelard because he had one of the great love affairs in all of human history with Heloise. And Abelard and Heloise wrote letters back and forth to one another that you may have read, again, in some kind of um, literature class or something like that. Uh, this was after Abelard was castrated by some henchmen hired by Heloise's uncle who didn't like the fact that he had, that Abelard and Heloise had secretly married. And um, so it was an ugly, terrible story, but in other ways a beautiful story. Abelard uh, fled after being castrated out into the woods of France and he just wanted to live a sol be a solitary monk and live alone. But he was so clearly the most brilliant French philosopher and theologian at the time that people went out into the woods and camped out into the woods just so they could maybe hear him preaching to the birds in the trees. People would follow him through the woods. This is how brilliant this guy was. He invented a thing called dialectical theology and he wrote a book arguing against Anselm and Anselm's view that God was angry with us and that we owe God. He said, the cross is not about assuaging God's wrath. The cross, like everything God does, is 100% about love. That's all that it is. It is about love. It is a beautiful act of love. So, what he says is um, that when, and maybe you've had Maybe you've had some kind of experience like this in your life. But he says, when you see people at the foot of the cross on Good Friday or on Easter morning crying and, being, and, and falling in love with the beauty of the cross, that is because it is such an act of love that it draws people to God. Jesus had to do something so outrageously sacrificial as, and, and so iconic as to die on a cross to get across to us 
how much God loves us. Something less dramatic wouldn't have gotten the lesson across to us. So this is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus says it at the Last Supper, you know, that the ultimate sacrifice that someone will have is that they will lay down their life for a friend. And then he went and did the exact thing that he'd been preaching, to lay down his life for a friend, lay down his life in the face of Roman persecution. And so Anselm's um, theory is that Jesus' life, um, in fact, in some ways he says we should think less about Jesus' crucifixion and more about the life of love that Jesus lived because it only culminates in the crucifixion that, we're, that he thought Anselm was overemphasizing the crucifixion. So that's Abelard with the magnet theory. Like the cross, Jesus on the cross is the world's most powerful electro, electromagnet drawing people to itself. And we see it. I mean, the cross is an extraordinarily powerful symbol that a lot of us wear on our necks or people get tattooed or you see it, you know, all over the world. You see um, crosses on the top of steeples and things like that. All right, this one's a little bit off kilter for us in the West because in the East, Eastern Christianity, which we call orthodoxy, they don't believe in this doctrine of original sin. Not only that, there's a... uh, an important like theological doctrine in the Eastern Church called theosis. And theosis was best summed up by John Chrysostom, the, one of the great fathers of the Eastern Church. Chrysostom said very fa- his most famous line, and it's, it's um, well, I'll apologize for it afterwards. God became man so that man might become God. This is how he wrote it, right? But of course, we're going to say humanity. God became human, so I'm God. Sometimes you will hear that translated. This shows how uncomfortable we are with it. God became human, so humans could become like God. But that's not what he said. Christum didn't say like God. Christum said God. Um, in the Eastern Church, there is this belief of theosis that God lives inside of us. Something of God lives inside of us. In the Western tradition, particularly because of Augustine and kind of how he set the whole thing up, we most often think of God as outside and other, as sovereign other. And so prayer is always about trying to bridge that gap. Jesus' death is always about trying to bridge that gap. That's not the case in orthodoxy, where there's a very strong belief that God dwells within us. Their understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden is that somehow that pilot light of God within human beings got snuffed out by Adam and Eve turning their backs on God and leaving the Garden. And that for a long time, humankind lacked that light of God, that flame of the Spirit within them. So Jesus, by being God incarnate, came to earth and basically by reuniting in his body, 
humanity and divinity in Jesus of Nazareth, that pilot light got relit in humankind. So God, Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but really um, Jesus' life in particular, relit the pilot light and got the flame of divinity going again within humankind. You've maybe heard this old trope that um, for, for Catholics, the most important holiday is Good Friday. That's why in Catholic churches, it's a crucifix with Jesus on the cross. For Protestants, the most important day is Easter. That's why we have crosses without Jesus. Jesus is off the cross. He's been resurrected. And for the Orthodox, the most important holiday is Christmas because that's the day that God and humanity came together in the birth of Jesus. And really there is, in, not that they, I mean, if they do celebrate um, uh, Good Friday and Easter in the Orthodox Church, but the incarnation of Jesus really is uh, of primary theological importance in the Eastern Church. And so when you think of Jesus' death, you're thinking of that divine spark being relit within each of us. Okay, one more. And this is um, the newest and arguably the most fascinating understanding of the atonement. It was developed by a 20th century French anthropologist named René Girard. Girard spent his career studying ancient mythologies. And what he found in these ancient mythologies, the founding myths of almost all civilizations, was he found the same thing happening over and over again. And here's, what's ha here's what happened. And, and he used it to understand how human beings started to form society and, and, and how religion became a linchpin and the only way that humans could form uh, societies where they live together. So here it is in brief. One human being sees something, wants something. Another human being sees that same thing. Two cavemen, they both want the same club. That's what he calls mimetic rivalry. You see something somebody else wants and now you want it too. Mimetic, so there's like, you know, you're, you're copying somebody else. And then that turns into a rivalry, and the two pound on each other, blood is spilled, and the winner goes away with the club, or the wheel, or what you could think of like, I don't know, like Hagar the Horrible comics or something like that. It's like, or BC, remember the old BC comics? You even remember that? Wow, all right. The young gun remembers BC comics. So BC comics, like that. Human beings are intensely rivalrous. It's how we respond to one another. Here's how religion allowed human society to form, primeval human society to form. Because the religious person, the chief or the witch doctor or the shaman or whomever, would ritualize the bloodletting, would ritualize the violence in a sacrifice 
Say, okay, instead of beating on each other, I, I'm going to pick the person that we are going to sacrifice. And then the group feels it's like a pressure release valve on the mob. When somebody is scapegoated for the anger and guilt that has built up in the community. So you throw a virgin into the volcano or you sacrifice a child or you... I mean, what, what Girard says is one of the things that Judaism did that was such a great step forward in human history is in Judaism, only animals were sacrificed, not humans, like all of the Hebrews' neighbors were still sacrificing humans in this scapegoating mechanism. It's lynching is what it is. It's, it's lynching. He uses that term freely, lynching. So he's studying all this, and he's seeing how what religion does is it regularizes and ritualizes the scapegoating mechanism in which an innocent victim is blamed for the sins of the community, is ritually killed, and then everyone goes away. It's like you kind of... You know, you can kind of imagine it, even in a lynching. Like, an innocent person is killed because we're mad about whatever, people who don't look like us moving into where we live, and then the mob dissipates because their, their, bloodthirsty, their bloodthirsty lust has somehow been sated. And then they go away until it rises up again, and then there's another lynching or another scapegoating. What Gerard noticed in his like 60s is that in Christianity, Jesus is a truly innocent victim. Whether you think of it as fact or myth, it doesn't matter to Gerard that something's different in Christianity. In that it, and so sometimes it's a misnomer, but sometimes people call his theory the last scapegoat. Theory. Because in Christianity, of course, there's Jesus' death is the last one. There is no more sacrificing. For the Christians, they don't keep going back to the temple and sacrificing goats and doves and oxen in Jerusalem. Jesus is it. But when people said this to Gerard and said, it, yours is the last scapegoat theory, he says, no, 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 it's different than that. What Jesus did was he pulled back the curtain and revealed that the scapegoating mechanism is bankrupt. It doesn't work. It's never what God wanted. And it's never worked at quelling violence because there always has to be another scapegoat and another scapegoat and another scapegoat. Jesus showed in his death on the cross that the scapegoating mechanism doesn't work. He revealed it. And that's why Gerard converted to Christianity in his 60s. He was one of the great intellectuals of, of 20th century France. Like he was, he was, no, he was no slouch. He taught, he taught in Paris and he taught at Stanford. And you can still, you can go listen to, if you want, I'll, I'll send Dan, there's, he did some podcast interviews at Stanford um, that are brilliant on this very topic. And he wrote very readable books on this topic about scapegoating mechanism. So it's just yet another way to see. And now I don't know if you remember this, but there's this kind of obscure passage in the Old Testament 
in which um, on, on uh, Yom Kippur, that not only is there's animals sacrificed in the temple, but there's one goat, and the priest lays the sins of Israel on the scapegoat, and the goat is sent out into the wilderness where it dies. And, and you know, like, all the sins of Israel for the year are laid on the goat, symbolically, and the goat is sent off. And so the scapegoating mechanism, even in Judaism, was, was in the consciousness of Jews when they saw Jesus on the cross. And then when people like Paul try to come to terms with what does this mean, of course, in relation to this long history of sacrifice and scapegoating and bloodletting that they had in Judaism. So, that's the, the... Oh, and why do I call it the mirror theory? Because if you... If, if you Embrace this theory. When you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, when you look at the cross, what you see is Jesus reflecting back to us the bankruptcy of violence, of human violence. That's what we should see when we look at the cross. That should be Jesus' message on the cross. He's reflecting back to us. This is what happens because of human violence. The Savior of the world and the Son of God is killed. That's how bad violence is. So turn away from it. So that's why I called it the mirror theory. Okay. Those are the theories of the atonement. It's five after eight. I am going to give you my theory of the atonement tomorrow morning in the sermon. (laughs) So you have to come back. Cliffhanger. Or you can read my book. It's on page 230. Because Jack asked me, Jack asked me, and I, I, I'm always, um, I always, I, I coach a lot of young writers, and I'm always telling them, don't give away, don't tell in the first chapter what the thesis of your book is. Make people read the whole book. So, but now you know you can skip right to page 230, or come to church tomorrow morning and uh, hear my version of the atonement. It's kind of a hybrid model. All right? Great. I guess we're going to adjourn into the other room. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. This is Beth from Vero Beach, Florida. Thank you for listening to Round Hill Radio. This podcast is brought to you by the members and friends of Round Hill Community Church. You can listen to more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and roundhillcommunitychurch.org. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Thanks.